I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. My message today is part of our series entitled, Beating the Odds. In America today, the odds against marriage and the family are disturbingly high. Almost 50% of all marriages end in divorce. 40% of all babies in America are born to unwed mothers. The Supreme Court of the United States has redefined marriage in a way that is very different from the biblical definition. Therefore, the institution of marriage and the welfare of families are at risk. God endorsed the nuclear family, father, mother, and children as the basic building block of a healthy culture. This message is offered as a help in building faithful, loving families. Our scriptural lessons come from both the Old and the New Testaments. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. First from Proverbs 22, verse six, we read, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Our New Testament lesson is from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter six, verses one through four. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on this earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Yaakov Smirnoff. The author of the best-selling book, America on Six Rubles a Day, made this statement in his book. Coming from the Soviet Union, I was not prepared for the incredible variety of products in American grocery stores. I saw powdered milk. You just add water and you get milk. I saw powdered orange juice. You just add water and you get orange juice. And then I saw baby powder. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, what a country. <laughs> Sorry, Yaakov, it's not that easy. That baby, as he or she grows through childhood and especially the teen years, will require the wisest and the best and the most costly love we can provide. 
Indeed, I contend that the way to measure America's true strength is not by counting her nuclear weapons or battleships or submarines or even her gross domestic product. The core of America's strength is, is her number of loving, faithful families. What a challenging time it is in America today to be rearing children. Some time ago, the Los Angeles County School System erected a 10-foot high wall around a junior high school because of the frequency of gunfire in that community. Many of our schools in South Carolina have had to install uh, surveillance and metal detection devices. 50 years ago, the most common fears of elementary school children in America were animals, snakes, dark rooms, high places, and loud noises. Today in America, the most common fears of elementary age children are parental divorce, guns, and mugging. Indeed, a child growing up today in Lexington will almost certainly be invited to use marijuana and cocaine. In this era of great danger and numerous negative influences, we have the high privilege and holy duty of guiding those precious little people whom God created. And while my primary focus today is on children and, and parents, it's not limited to those. So many of us have a chance to influence young people, and that includes grandparents and uncles and aunts and teachers and coaches and counselors. So let's begin by getting real about ourselves and our children. Our culture, the American culture today, through media, TV, otherwise, tries to sell a huge lie, huge lie. And the lie is this, that all people are basically good and are gradually getting better. That's it. And according to this view, if a parent will just build self-esteem in a child and then get out of the way, that kid will grow up to be almost an angel. The Bible calls that view a lie, a big lie. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Every child comes into this world tilted toward selfishness and rebellion, just like his parents. And any parent who has survived uh, his or her child's terrible twos should realize the truth of that statement. In Proverbs 2, verse 15, we read, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. That means that all children begin in a self-centered world of infancy, giving free reign to impulsive actions. And if that child is not trained properly, if no intervention takes place, he or she could grow up to be a criminal. But every child is also incredibly malleable and trainable. 
And the earlier the training starts, the more likely it is to be lasting. King Solomon wrote, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not turn from it. So let's begin with biblical guidance for children, especially for teenagers. St. Paul wrote, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And the word obey comes from a Greek word, which means literally to stand under, to be under the authority of another. Indeed, it's a military word signifying the authority that a lieutenant has over a private. Notice that St. Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means that children are to obey, not just because mom and dad want them to, but because the Lord Jesus Christ wants them to. That is a child's responsibility as a Christian. Here's the second guideline for children. Honor your father and mother, regardless of age. Yes, that's one of the Ten Commandments. What does honor mean? It means not just to obey parents, but to do it with the right spirit, the right attitude. If you obey grudgingly, then you haven't really honored your parent. Honoring parents means to treat them with loving respect without pouting or resentment, knowing that this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There were two children, sisters ages four and six, who pooled their allowance money and bought their mother a house plant for Mother's Day. And of course, she was thrilled. The older child, the six-year-old, with a sad expression said, Mom, at the flower shop, we saw a bouquet we wanted to buy for you, but it was too expensive. It had a ribbon on it that said, rest in peace. <laughs> now, not many mothers get a chance to rest in peace, but I guarantee you that mother felt honored there is a promise that goes with this guideline. Honor your parents that it might go well with you. That means that life will be smoother if you honor your parents. But if you're resentful and angry, you'll pay for it. And there are many doctors who claim that discord within the family can produce acne, ulcers, indigestion, and even allergic reactions like asthma. So that's a biblical advice for children. Now let's turn to biblical guidance for parents. St. Paul commands fathers and mothers, don't exasperate your children. And the Living Bible translates that command as follows. Don't keep on scolding and nagging. Parents should replace nagging with consistent accountability. Have you ever been at a grocery store and witnessed a permissive mother dealing with her two-year-old. Now the two-year-old boy wants a candy bar and the mother says no and he starts screaming. She says, son, if you don't, I'm gonna count 10 and if you don't stop screaming, by the time I reach 10, I will punish you. She counts to 10, he keeps screaming. Then she says, I'm going to count to 10 again. 
And if you don't stop screaming by the time I get to 10, I'm going to punish you. She counts to 10 again. He keeps screaming. When she starts counting 10 the third time, other shoppers want to scream at her. Mom, for crying out loud, punish the kid. That mother, you see, is training her child that the threat of punishment is not really dependable or consistent and that bad behavior will be tolerated. And let me tell you, kids learn quickly. Now, everybody knows that the comic character Dennis the Menace is full of mischief. But I've got a feeling the kid's going to turn out really well because he's got a mother who disciplines him. Think about all the time he spends in that chair in the corner. And when he's been really bad, he's in solitary, like that picture shows, without even his faithful dog, Ruff, there to comfort him. Yes, he's got a mother who holds him to accountability. When our older son was about to enter the ninth grade, my wife and I sat down with him and worked up a list of rules. And we also included punishments if the rules were infringed, broken. He, we got input from him, but we made the final decisions. And we wrote this out and put it in a prominent place so everybody could see it. And then every year, uh, along about his birthday, thereabouts, we would sit down with him and review the rules. And if he had been responsible and obedient, and bless his heart, he was, we would revise or even eliminate some of the rules. That happened every year. By the time he got to be a senior, he was virtually rule-free. In other words, he was self-regulating because we knew that the next year he would be off in college, would be self-regulating. So we were glad to have him one year at home self-regulating under our supervision. And it worked out well, thank the Lord. So the first rule for parents is don't exasperate your kids. Replace nagging with consistent accountability. Here's the second guideline for parents. Relationship plus rules is a great combination. Relationship plus rules is a great combination. Josh McDowell in his book, The Disconnected Generation, declares that relationship without rules equals irresponsibility. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. But relationship plus rules is a positive, leads to a positive response. Now, some parents send out only one message to their teenagers. Stay out of trouble and get good grades. That's it. But if there's no meaningful relationship there between parents and teenagers, then that command, that standard rings hollow. So parents, sit down with your teenagers often and listen to them. Say, how's it going with you? What's bringing you some joy? What's bringing you some sorrow? What are the good times? What are the tough times? How is it in your life? And then really listen. Hold your advice until you have really listened. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And surely that includes relationships in the home. Deal with your teenager's feelings first. And then you can get on with problems and misbehavior. 
I remember that when our son was in junior high school, uh, he came to me one day and he said, Dad, I don't think my basketball coach is treating me fairly. My wife and I asked, we listened to him, asked some questions, got his feedback. Later, my wife and I talked about it. And so I went back to my son and I said, son, if you want me to, I'll be glad to go have a conversation with your coach. He thought about it for a few moments and he said, uh, no, dad, I don't think so right now. Uh, let me try to work it out. And he did. And I think he grew because of it. But I also think it helped that we listened to him. Parents, show your affection for your teenagers. Not in front of their friends now, that'll embarrass them. But I'm talking about when it's just the two of you. Show your affection. Yes, that includes a lot of hugs. It includes words. Catch them doing something right and commend them for it. Say things like, I appreciate you spending time with your little sister. You know how she idolizes you. Say things like, I'm proud of the fact that you do your homework without being hassled about it. And yes, it's wonderful to stop that teenager occasionally. Put a hug on him or her, look him in the eyes and say, I feel so lucky to be your dad or to be your mom. The words discipline and disciple come from the same root word, which means to teach. Discipline is just a form of teaching that involves a bit more accountability. You parents are charged by God to do quality control over your children, to supervise uh, the TV and the movies they watch, the friends they hang out with, uh, their use of the internet, and surely you're aware that the vilest pornography is available in most American homes by way of the internet. This does not mean, even when the relationship is good, it does not mean that your teenager will always appreciate your rules. For example, when you tell your high school daughter that she can't share a house at the beach with 12 other kids, boys and girls, without a chaperone, she may not appreciate that. She may tell you you're old-fashioned. She may tell you, my friend's parents don't have any problem with it, so why should you? She may ask, don't you trust me? And then she may cry. And that's hard on dads. <laughs> but if you stand by the rules that you believe to be wise and right, there will come a time when she will thank you for it. Pastor Bob Russell of Louisville, Kentucky, recalls that when he was a teenager, one of the rules that his parents had was this. You may not bring your girlfriend to our house if no one else is there. So one day, Bob said to his mom, Mom, why do you have that rule? Don't you trust me? Mom did not say, Yes, I trust you, son, but it wouldn't look right. Mom did not say, yeah, I trust you, son, but I don't trust your girlfriend. Instead, she said, 
No, I don't trust you because I know the temptation might be too strong for you. And Bob said he would walk, he walked away from that encounter thinking, you know, my mom is pretty sharp. Bob's mother just believed that because of our sin nature, temptation is very strong and when possible, it ought to be avoided. She demonstrated that relationship plus rules is a good combination. Here's the third guideline for parents. Disciple your children. Disciple your children. St. Paul wrote, bring them, your children, up in the training and instruction of the Lord. A Sunday school teacher asked a little boy one Sunday why he believed in God. And the little fellow thought for a few moments and said, I think it runs in our family. <laughs> you bet it does. You bet it does. We know from extensive surveys that when both mother and father not only attend church, but teach spiritual values at home, the odds are overwhelming that their children will learn to love God and the church. Sometime back, a survey was conducted by the University of Chicago trying to find out where kids get their information about morality and religion. What are the sources of that information? And the results of their investigation might surprise you. The number one source of their information about morality and religion came from conversations at mealtime. That might be an incentive for families to have at least a few meals during the week when everybody is there without any TVs on or smartphones. Indeed, I know of one father who at least once a week devotes the mealtime conversation to some spiritual or ethical issue raised by the news of that week. Parents, look for opportunities to share with children how you came to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Your personal experience is your most convincing testimony. Surveys show that people that most people come to faith between the ages of 8 and 15. And I really think that a child is most receptive to the Lord between the ages of 11 and 13. And I've always contended that if a, if, if a person's earliest memories from childhood include the memory of a parent praying for him or her by name, that person will never stray very far from Jesus Christ for very long. A mother in a former congregation of mine told me about an experience she had. She said one evening I had already gone to bed, heard a knock on the bedroom door. I said, come in. And it was my eight-year-old daughter, Sarah. And I asked, what is it, honey? And she said, mom, I just prayed that prayer. And mom asked, what prayer? And Sarah said, I prayed the prayer to invite Jesus into my heart. I told him that I love him and will always serve him. And mom hugged Sarah with tears in her eyes. And then mom remembered that several months earlier, 
she had told Sarah about the time when she, as a child, first prayed the prayer to invite Jesus into her heart. And her testimony had a powerful effect on her daughter. And several months later, I had the privilege of baptizing Sarah. Parents, let me describe to you the ideal situation. Now, this, this should be our goal. This is the ideal. In the home, we teach our children to pray and to read the Bible, and they see us doing it. We train them to trust God and to discern between right and wrong. We teach them to love the church as their spiritual home. And then gradually, as they get older, they transfer their dependence from us to God. We gradually work ourselves out of a job, leaving our children as confident Christians, intimately related to the Heavenly Father. To rear a child in this manner is the greatest success one can know on earth. Let me conclude with a true story about one very influential parent. Most of you recall the late, great George Beverly Shea, that wonderful soloist for Billy Graham. He was reared in a Christian home and felt an early calling to use his considerable musical gifts in Christian ministry. But in his 20s, he got involved in Wall Street finance, and he was good at it and he was making a whole lot of money. And so his vocational plans began to shift from ministry to Wall Street finance. His mother saw what was happening and was concerned. She had discovered a poem written by Ray Miller entitled, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And she placed that poem on the piano, which George often played, so he would be sure to see it. Well, he saw it, and he was captivated by it. And he designed the music to go with those words. Those words were, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Suddenly one day, George realized that his mother had targeted him with that poem. It was a special message from God to him. And so down on his knees, George promised that no amount of money would ever lure him away from the call to ministry. And as they say, the rest is history. The earliest and the best way to hear God's call is through devoted, faithful parents. The single greatest thing one can do on earth is to lead a child to Christ. Now listen as Anne sings that great hymn. And as you listen, thank God for that mother who handed a poem to her son that changed his life. 
and thank God for using George and that song to reach the entire world. <laughs>